Well, if you would this morning, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 6. First uh, Samuel uh, chapter 6. And hopefully um, you remember um, where we've been. Um, the Ark of the Lord is in the possession of the Philistines as we move into this text. Um, you can say they've kidnapped it or however you want to say it, but they've um, paraded it around. They've celebrated it as a symbol of their God's supposed victory um, over Israel's God, over Jehovah God, um, as well as you know their accompanying national victory. Um, but as we're going to see, things are not quite as they think, and um, that makes me reminds me of another story I heard about a kidnapping that didn't go um, quite as they expected. But a, a lady's phone rang, and uh, when she answered, she heard the kidnapper say, "Well, we have your son." She said, "Well, I don't, I don't have a son." Kidnapper said, "Well, then who just asked for warm milk and made us cut the crust off of his sandwich?" And she said, "Well, you have my husband." Um, anyway, sorry, I just. Just because, you know, anyway. Um, kidnappings don't always go as expected. And that's kind of what the Philistines learned this morning. Why don't you stand with me out of reverence respect for God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 6, um, verses 1 through 9. We have more husbands in the room in this service because they laughed at the first service. They laughed at that joke. Anyway, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, um, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Um, tell us with what we shall send it to its place. Uh, they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Um, then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? Uh, they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. And verse 5, So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Verse 7, Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows in which there's never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who's done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us, it happened to us by coincidence. You may be seated. <clears throat> so today we're going to come to um, what we're going to call, uh, there we go, the Philistines' plan. Um, it's almost kind of a, a test, um, but like all ancient peoples, the Philistines were very religious. Um, the truth of the matter is it's really not until uh, man has become, become pride, quite prideful um, that the idea of atheism has um, become popularized. Um, there was no atheism in the ancient world. They, they had lots of false gods, certainly. They did not all worship one, the one true God, but they were all um, mindful of the idea that this did not happen by chance, that there had to be a creator. Um, so to them, as they come to this situation, um, 
they're going to propose a test, a theory to explain um, what has been happening. Now, it's obviously much more than that in the big picture. Um, it would be easy for us to forget Israel, but we shouldn't. They're in the background of this. Um, this is all being done, I believe, to be an example to them um, as well as to the Philistines. Everyone involved in this is going to see a picture of the glory of God and the sovereignty of God and of His power. Um, that's important. Um, there's also going to be some echoes of um, something very familiar to us. We've studied the book of Exodus before, and um, the Exodus of Israel is kind of at the forefront of what we're seeing. There's almost a second Exodus here, and again, it comes at a time when, when Israel, in a sense, is enslaved. Um, they're in bondage to their own sin and to their own idolatry, um, and so it makes sense um, that that occurs here. But one way or the other, again, we're going to see the glory of God and His sovereignty kind of shine forth. But let's um, jump into where we are. Um, be mindful, again, the kind of the centerpiece of this text is uh, the treasure, we're calling it the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Lord. Um, it holds the tablets of the Ten Commandments, um, the rod of Aaron, which budded and designated Aaron's line as the, uh, the line of the priest uh, or the high priest, remnant of the manna that God had provided for Israel when he sustained them in the wilderness. And when you boil it down, all those are kind of pictures of not just God's glory, but also symbols of his faithfulness to Israel. And that's, in a sense, in the bigger picture, and that's what the Ark of the, the Covenant really represented. We know that his glory was um, frequently manifested above the Ark's cherubim when it was in the tabernacle. Um, but now this special symbol of God's relationship with the children of Israel, it was in the hands of their enemies, the Philistines. Um, the Philistines um, did not really understand what it was, but they were simply seeing it as a religious talisman, as a, a symbol of their, their God, Dagon's victory over Israel's God, Jehovah. Um, they've got his ark, so to speak. They have it in their possession, and that proves um, their God's superiority. That's at least what they're thinking, okay? But as time has passed and as they found Dagon fallen over and then uh, the next day found him fallen over again and his head cut off and his hands cut off um, and then as plagues and, and tumors and, and death even began to spread throughout the land, I believe they began to question whether or not their God was really in control. Um, they began to... Um, I think fear that maybe the God of the ark had something to do with this because everywhere the ark went, um, death kind of followed in its wake. And so that's what sets up um, this next series of events Okay, that we break down. Uh, we come to this moment in time, verse 1, uh, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Some want to speculate because the number of seven traditionally throughout Scripture is kind of a number of completion or perfection. And they say, well, this is just symbolic. But there's nothing in this text to indicate that this is not an actual passage of time. Okay, seven months pass. And um, seven months of the Philistine leaders moving the ark around in their own country like a hot potato um, from one ruling city to another, as we'll see. It makes its way through all five ruling cities um, from what we gather in this text. Plague, tumors, death following along in its wake. And it would seem that the people begin to get suspicious that their, uh, their heads of state, their kings, so to speak, that they don't really know what they're dealing with. 
Um, because again, this has been five stops in seven months of death and disaster. And um, it's not an unusual idea, but when the government fails, um, people begin to grasp for something else and they begin to ask other questions. And I, I would still argue that's the way it is today, that uh, it's, it's only when the lost world is desperate that it begins to explore the idea of religion. Um, not always uh, the true religion, um, the worship of the one true God, but when the, the government fails or the economy collapses or, or there's war, war and famine and all those things, that's when people begin to ask bigger questions bigger questions and that's kind of the way the Philistines um, are here they're not sure what has been happening um, but they've realized that their approach that they've taken is not working and so they began to ask some other questions and that really leads us um, to the next thing uh, the ministers and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners that's kind of like their professional religious um, establishment and said what shall we do with the ark of the Lord tell us with what we shall send it to its place now again, we're to assume, if we consider Dagon's temple um, that, and the existence of priests and diviners, that the Philistines had uh, a fairly complicated religious system. Again, it didn't worship Jehovah, don't get me wrong, they're not followers of the one true God, um, but they ha had a religion, so to speak. And while Israel's law prohibited diviners such as these, uh, the pagan Philistines embraced them. And that's one of the reasons why God is going to judge the Philistines even while he uses them um, to purify Israel. He was not going to allow these Philistines to control uh, Jerusalem and the city, uh, the crossroads of the world, so to speak, at this time because they worshipped false gods and they believed in these uh, diviners. Uh, such things were, um, according to the, the law of God, um, were not to occur. Deuteronomy 18, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or daughter as an offering, I would argue that's akin to our current cult uh, practice of abortion. Um, anyone who practices divination, tells fortunes, interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Yes, it is true that this was given to Israel as a part of um, the old law or the Mosaic law, but I think we need to understand something. Um, besides maybe some of the dietary restrictions and some things that were given to, to Israel as health and safety practices, so to speak, the things that were considered by God to be sinful and wicked under the old covenant, they're still sinful and wicked today, okay? Now, the principles of the law have value for us. They tell us what God hates. They tell us what God loves, so to speak. And so these things are still wrong. All right, They were wrong for the Philistines, and they were using these diviners and these mediums. And uh, a diviner at, at this time is best understood, again, as sort of a religious professional um, who um, would hire out to any sort of religious practice, really. And, and they would attempt to um, discern the will of the divine apart from the methods that God had prescribed in His Word. Okay, um, So um, that's who they were, and we still have plenty of this today. You may not hear the word diviners used very much, but um, we have witchcraft, and we have black magic, and we have seances, and we have horoscopes. They're even published in the daily newspapers of our nation. We have tarot cards. Uh, those are all along the same stream. And my point is they're wrong, and they're wicked, and, and God tells us not to participate, but the reality is we all know people who do. 
Um, and so here we have a situation where the Philistines are engaging in these things, and the truth be told, Israel had done so as well. Uh, Isaiah 2.6, For you've rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they're full of things from the east, um, of fortune tellers like the Philistines, that would be the diviners. They strike hands with the children of foreigners, just mean they participate in the same things that these ungodly people, um, these wicked people, uh, these worshipers of idols, the, the children of God were doing the exact same thing and I would propose to you by the way that uh, unfortunately there are too many in the church of God God's children followers of, of Christ who also participate in these sorts of things and it should not be that way uh, these diviners were not of God um, but they're going to stand as proof in this text that God can use whomever and whatever he wishes to fulfill his will and we'll see that as we go along so the moment the ministers then we come to the mandate, you might say. Uh, these Philistines, again, I'm not telling you they believe in Jehovah. They do not, all right? Now, they, they might say, well, Jehovah is one of many gods, but they don't believe in Jehovah and his exclusivity as God's word demands that we do, okay? But they were religious, all right? And almost all religious traditions, uh, I certainly would tell you, I believe all religious traditions have a shadow of an of or an echo of the one true God and, and, and the way he tells us to worship him. And one of the things that echoes out of that is this idea that uh, all um, religious systems, again, believe that you should not approach a God empty-handed. Um, if you're familiar with the Greek mythology in any way, those Greek gods, were they were capricious, they were wicked, they were demanding, and they always required something of man. And, and there was always this understanding that you had to keep them happy, that you had to bring them what they wanted, so to speak. Well, that's what these Philistines are thinking here. Um, that's the way they're approaching God. You don't bring him, um, you don't come to him empty-handed. And that does, again, have an, an echo or a it's symbolized by some things that are true of our God. Um, the Exodus story is going to be kind of written in the fabric of, of this historical event. If you remember anything about the Passover um, and how it um, echoed God's deliverance of Israel, um, it was tied to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, as I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. There's the same principle. You don't approach God empty-handed. And, and reality is, even in a New Testament echo, um, if we're thankful people, if we've been blessed of God, if we have a relationship with God, uh, we too should, God does not need it, don't get me wrong, he's not appeased by our sacrifices or our guilt offerings or our, our offerings, but the reality is, we as a thankful people should give back to God, um, obedience, um, tithes and offerings, those sorts of things, um, that's what this is an echo of, okay, so they're simply saying don't come to him empty-handed it's not a crazy principle whether you believe in jehovah or not okay um and again the the exodus is kind of um, written in here um, we'll see it come up multiple times um, but one way or the other these priests and the diviners they know it hasn't gone well they're not exactly sure what is happening um, but they're kind of being cautious uh, maybe we need to take maybe we need to slow down and figure out what's going on um, I would argue that's better than being arrogant and brash which is what Hopney and Phineas um, had done but anyway um, they proposed some steps to take all right um, if you're going to return this thing you need to keep a few things in mind first of all guilt 
They said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Um, Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. Again, it kind of follows that principle. You never approach a God um, empty-handed. If we have this thing, and we're being judged because we've got it and we've somehow done wrong with it or, or we've profaned it and we've messed up, then we need to understand we're guilty and we need to present to God a guilt offering. That's the way uh, their minds are working. And again, they don't have it all figured out. They're not worshipers of Jehovah, but they're not too far off, okay? They understand that it's likely that they've incurred some sort of guilt. Now, we need to know that these are idolatrous people. They do not have the Word of God. They were not aware of all the rules and regulations that he gave regarding the handling of the ark, but they are rightly connecting the dots and presuming that they've somehow misappropriated it or or they've profaned a holy thing. Now, I think one of the things you have to see at this point in time is if we're being fair, who should know how to handle the ark in this text? Well, I would argue Hopney and Phineas. Uh, the sons of Eli, uh, the priesthood of Israel. Uh, They had the rules and the regulations, but they hadn't honored God. They were adulterers, and they had wheeled the Ark of the Covenant out to the battlefield to act like some sort of magic talisman to guarantee them military victory. They had profaned the Ark more than even... The Philistines don't know any better, is my point. And we live in a similar world today. The reality is it's very easy for the church to gather up in this place and to say things about the lost world and about our broken culture and to cast aspersions upon, let's be honest, about people that don't know Jesus and in that sense they don't know any better. They need the church to introduce them to the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news. They they need to be saved. In God's eyes, he's not... Out, out there judging the lost world, the reality is God holds the church to a higher standard. Discipline begins here because we should know better, because we've been given the Word of God. We have the regulations of God. We understand, whereas a, a lost person who's never been in church, never been exposed to the Word of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ, they do not understand. These Philistines, they're speculating. Okay, if, if we've done something wrong, then, then we're guilty. And in all religious systems of their day, that kind of guilt had to be assuaged by a, a gift or an animal sacrifice or something. Now, again, that was a synchristic, uh, synchronistic mimicking of God's actual requirement. Uh, Leviticus 5.15, If anyone commits a breach of faith, sins unintentionally, and any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation or his guilt offering a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. There's the actual principle of a guilt offering written in Scripture. Okay? Practice of a guilt offering um, that other religions have adopted came from uh, the actual worship of God. And here's the reality. God still requires guilt offerings. But the mistake we've made, and too many have made it, Israel began to believe that it was actually the blood of the animal that was sacrificed on the altar. That was never the guilt offering that God intended to accept. That was meant to be a symbol or a type flashing forward to or symbolizing um, pictorially the one true guilt offering that God accepts, which is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, There had to be an atonement made. There had to be a uh, son of God come and take on flesh, dwell among us, live a sinless life, die an atoning death. That is the one true guilt offering that all guilt offerings are always meant to foreshadow. Okay, And so in that sense, the Philistines, they're brushing up against the truth. Sin is a debt which man occurs against God. 
And that guilt, because God is holy and he is righteous and he cannot be in the presence of sin, that guilt has to be assuaged in some way. Now, God is not an idol like Dagon or, you know, this um, headless, handless torso that was laying in their temple. He was not created by the hands of men, but he's the very creator of the universe. He's the sustainer of all that we know. His glory is incomparable. And he, he cannot be in the presence of the wickedness of man. It separates us from him permanently, eternally. Uh, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all got a sin problem, therefore it has to be made right in order for us to have a relationship with God. The justice uh, of the holy sovereign creator demands that there has to be a guilt offering or there's separation and judgment. And, and that restitution or that atonement, it starts with an understanding that there is only one offering that God accepts the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I believe accompanying that, there should be personal repentance and confession of sin. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift, the guilt offering that God accepts is eternal, or that, and the gift he gives is eternal life through that offering of Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we need to understand that the shed blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing which can atone for our sins. Again, it is the one true guilt offering. So let me ask you this morning, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Uh, you've got many other religious traditions out there. Maybe it's not the Philistines and, and what they were worshiping. Maybe you've never heard of Dagon, but you've heard of other ways in order to have peace uh, with God or some other creator. What I'm telling you is there is one way. His name is Jesus Christ, and he died on the cross to make a way for you. But you have to confess your sins. You have to repent of your sins. You have to accept the offering that he made on your behalf in order to have a personal relationship with him and to be forgiven. You can do that today. All right, this is just kind of a type of that. It's showing that. And so they say, uh, we, we've got guilt. Well, if we've got guilt, uh, the next thing we have to do is we have to understand that gifts have to accompany that guilt offering. They say, well, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And it has to be something um, substantial. It has to be tangible. And in that sense, it almost always was financial, whether it was a, an animal from the flock or whatever it was. And they said, well, um, and I believe this is what um, fancy people would call sympathetic magic is what they're practicing um, if you're trying to get rid of something you give God so to speak offerings in the shape of that thing you're trying to get rid of so we're going to give him five golden tumors now I don't know any God that wants a tumor but anyway um, that's what they're going to do now I, I can't draw you a picture of what this tumor looks like because tumors may take on different shapes and forms depending on the affliction uh, again this may be bubonic um, plague in some form that God is using but one way or the other they're going to shape a, a golden tumor however that's going to look five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, and I believe because this thing has gone to the five ruling cities, and, and this is their gift that they're going to give to God. For the same plague was on all of you and on your Lord, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land. Again, we don't need to understand what people think about sympathetic magic, but I think this is a pretty good picture of it. You want to get rid of it, you fashion the tumors, you fashion the mice, send them away. Um, you could also say that even that has a, a bit of a companion piece in Scripture. Um, if you remember when the nation of Israel was being afflicted by the serpents and they were dying, um, they were told to create a bronze serpent. Um, they lifted it up and people looked upon that and they were um, spared. 
See, but we know that was not sympathetic magic. What that actually was was a foreshadowing of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has to be high and lifted up. Um, uh, false religions are always going to grasp at straws. The reality is almost every single one of these things, it's always going to point to Jesus, church. It's not hard to see Jesus in this. But anyway, they fashioned the five golden tumors, the five golden mice, um, which again tells us, I think, that it's, the arch made its way through the five ruling cities um, and the plague, whether it's bubonic or otherwise, it's been repeated in each one of those locations. And then they actually use uh, the same word that it's, had a, has appeared in the book of Exodus, um, when they say, for the same plague. Well, you remember, um, God sent the plagues upon um, Egypt when Moses came and spoke to, Jeho or to um, Pharaoh, um, and he would not repent, and God judged him, and there was an, a new plague, and a new plague, and a new plague. It's the same word here, okay? And, and I think these priests and diviners, they know that. Um, Exodus 9, 14, for this time I will send um, all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. That was what God did, okay? I believe um, the shadow of that exodus, it just keeps reappearing here in the thinking of these priests and diviners. I think it's very possible that their so-called religious guild had some sort of record, not exactly biblically accurate, but they had some sort of record of what Egypt had had done to it by Jehovah. They knew about the plagues. They, they knew how they had um, been afflicted. Um, and, and they even, I believe, know what happened after that. If you remember, um, eventually... Um, God sends the Israelites to the Egyptians to uh, solicit gold and silver, and that's what they take out with them. People of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they'd asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. I believe these diviners are, are familiar with that part. Uh, of, of that um, again I always I don't want to say story it's a history lesson they know that happened they know there was a plague um, they know that they sent the people out with gold and silver and other gifts and I think that's what they're suggesting here uh, you want to appease God uh, we don't know exactly what we've done wrong but I guess we've profaned this, this ark and, and so if we want to get rid of it and we want to assuage our guilt and we want to get right with God we got to send it out of here it'll be a reverse exodus so to speak it's not Israel leaving this time but it's, it's God's ark going back to Israel and, and send it out with gold just like the people left Egypt I, I believe that's what they're saying and again I think explicitly um, this is accurate because we see the Exodus theme um, repeated verbatim in the next text they reference the glory of God too and give glory to the God of Israel which by the way Hopney and Phineas weren't talking about the glory of God by the way now they're, they're widows we're very aware, in a sense, that the glory of God um, had left Israel, so to speak. But Hopney and Phineas, the priests of God, weren't pointing to the glory of God. But now you've got a wicked nation, an idolatrous people, apostate people who worship Dagon, a, a, a statue made with their own hands. Now they're giving glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as what? as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts. And after he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? See, I, I think these, these diviners, maybe they don't have all their history right, but they know some of their history. And they know what happened to Egypt. And they know, here's the reality, Egypt was virtually destroyed by the time Pharaoh let the people go. And even then, he followed them out. And his army was destroyed uh, in the Red Sea. 
I, I think these, these Philistine diviners are saying, let's not be that stupid. We don't know for sure what's happening, you know, but let's learn our lesson quicker than Pharaoh. I mean, I, I don't know what you think. Seven months and five cities suffering the plagues, kind of taking a while to learn. But anyway, they're saying, uh, let's, let's not repeat the same mistake. Honoring God is better than hardening your hearts. So let's send this thing out of here with, uh, with golden tumors and mice and let's appease God. And again, I believe we're to see this from the perspective of look at what the Philistines are doing and they're getting pretty close to being wise about it. I hope the Israelites are listening to their approach to the Ark of the Covenant. I hope they're learning just a little bit. And here's the big picture truth. One way or the other, every nation will eventually figure this out and give glory to God. That's not just every nation from the pages of the Bible, but I mean every nation that exists today, every nation that will exist in the future, every nation that's around when, when Christ returns and is truly anointed king, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. God will receive the glory that he deserves. Revelation 7 9 through 12, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That day's coming. But let's wrap up this text. All that these priests and diviners are proposing, I mean, I've tried to give them the benefit of the doubt, but here's the reality. It's, it's just speculation. It's just a, a test if we're being honest about it. Um, it's just something they're, they're speculating about. Uh, verses 7 through 9. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there's never come a yoke. Yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, and that's uphill, by the way, toward Israel, then it's he who's done this, Jehovah God, who's done this, uh, this great harm. But if not, if they return to their nursing calves, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So there's no other way to read this but as a as a test, an experiment um, to determine if all this is a coincidence or, or, or a supernatural act of God, okay? Um, and it's a reminder why ultimately God always chooses to bless Israel in, in these battles with the Philistines. These are but pagans. They do not believe in Jehovah God. They're not worshiping God. They're only considering God as a conditional reality. Maybe he exists. But let's meddle just for a minute. How many people worship God, even attend church, practice religion, just in case God is real? Because if we're being honest about it, I believe there's a lot of people that they just sort of put on the dog and pony show just in case. It's a conditional sort of faith for them. I would argue, by the way, that this test exists to prove to us that God is real. He is who he says he is. This is not um, a story. This is history. There's been all kinds of examples of this history. I would always argue that just uh, the existence of the nation of Israel today 
is a pretty good picture um, that they are his children, that God is on his throne, um, because the reality is we're seeing very clearly, even in our modern society, there have always been those that want to destroy Israel. And they're still alive, and they're still um, present because I believe the sovereign hand of God. Anyway, that's just one example. If we're being honest, though, I, I hope I could open the floor up here as a church and say, someone give me an example of, of why you know God is real in your life. You might say your salvation. You might say something miraculous he did in your past. You might say um, your spouse, your family, your health. Sure, anybody have a testimony? Okay, I'm not putting you on the spot, but raise your hand if you can actually say, hey, there's a time in my life when I, I know God is real. And I don't just need the, the Word of God. I don't need some story from Philistine history. I know God is real. I've seen Him move and act in a way that I, I will never deny that He's real. Okay? I, I believe many of us have those, those kinds of things. And here's the reality. You know that to be true, and yet you go through life and you're on a little bit of a roller coaster when times are good. Oh, God is real when times are bad. Not so much. Okay? Well, that's kind of the way the Philistines are. Maybe, maybe he's real. Maybe we should serve him. Maybe we should send him gifts just in case. And I'm afraid that's too much like the religion that we practice. But I'm here to tell you, God is real. He is sovereign. He cares for his children in this world that he created, and he deserves our worship. Uh, Matthew 10, uh, 30 through 33, but even the hairs of your head are, are all numbered. He is that sovereign. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. If you're praying to God simply as a, as a contingency today, well, then you're no different than these Philistines. And I'd reconsider your position. But let's break down this proposed test, and we'll, we'll wrap up pretty quickly. Because it's pretty simple. We see the cart that's involved. Now then take and prepare a new cart. Um, uh, what they're doing is they're practicing religion as, as most people at their time would practice it. Um, presumably what they're saying is, hey, hey, this cart needs to be ceremonially clean. It, it can't be something that's been in the barn. It, it can't have been out in the field. It can't have been touched for any other purpose. If, if this ark thing is real and this really represents Jehovah God, we've probably been handling it wrong. And so let's make a new cart to return it to its place. Okay? And then they go on with the next part of the test. And, and two milk cows uh, on which there's never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart but take their calves home away from them now how many of y'all have ever worked with cows raise your hand all right it's a little bit there was more in the other service you know maybe that's why they thought the joke was funny i don't know and once you've worked with cows pretty much anything's funny but anyway um cattle are not smart anybody if you've worked with cows would you agree with me Okay, about the only thing you can train a cow to do is they, they know about what time and where you're going to put feed out and they will return to that pretty much at that time of day looking for their feed that's about all they want to learn Okay, they're not particularly smart animals now they're bound in, in many ways I believe by the laws that God created and, and by nature and if two milk cows have never been yoked and again yoke's not an egg by the way it's it's a device that connects these two milk cows to the cart that they're going to pull that has the ark of god on it and by the way the ark of god would have been heavy because it's laden with gold now they're putting a box with five tumors and five mice that would have been fairly heavy because anything pure gold is heavy and they're putting all that on a cart and they're putting 
certain two cows who've never pulled a cart, never been in a yoke attached to it. Trust me, even if you don't know cows, trust me when I say this, those two cows are much more likely to do nothing than to pull that cart. Okay. Now they might kick and, and rear and scream and holler and try to destroy the yoke and the cart, but the last thing they're going to do is cooperate as a team and pull that thing anywhere. But then they add one more test to it, and they say these are nursing cows, Okay, meaning they have calves at home, and, and they're, they're nursing them. They're trying to help them grow and mature, but that also means they're producing milk, and that makes them anxious to be milked so to speak they, they want to relieve that pressure so if they're going to go anywhere they're going to go home to their calves anybody follow me on that okay well i hope everybody follows me on that but that's the test okay um it's pretty simple now understand under the circumstances i don't believe they're really trying to show reverence to god they're just saying well maybe he exists <laughs> let's see what happens Israel, though, should have known better, right? And yet this is happening because Israel didn't know any better. Because they had let Hopni and Phinehas take this thing out to battle. And because their priests had been uh, adulterers. And because they had been guilty of, of profaning the ark of God. That's why it wound up in Philistine hands in the first place. And so that's why for a moment, just understand something. We want to read this text and, and maybe there's a part of our, our, our flesh that says, well, let's see these Philistines get what's coming to them. But here's the reality. I believe this message is not for the Philistines, but it's for Israel. And it's just... Just as much for the church of God today do we know better than they know do we know that God is real do we know how to handle sacred things do we know how to approach our God do we worship him with reverence and respect do we seek to honor the God that we know and love that we know is real or do we treat him like a thing that may or may not be like these Philistines are treating him in this sense. That's the test they set up, though. Let's continue. We see the cargo, take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you're returning to him as a guilt offering, then send it off and let it go its way. All right, so... Um, and we know at this point that they're handling this ark in ways that Israel couldn't have. Um, but see, the Philistines, they don't know all those rules. Again, they're not the people of God. Um, they haven't been given the word of God. Um, and so I believe God is showing them grace. They load the, the new cart up with the ark, golden guilt offerings, five tumors, five mice. And in a sense, the second exodus begins. This cow-drawn procession of the ark and the glory of Yahweh along the road to Beth Shemesh is really a picture of God liberating himself uh, from the presumed captivity here among the Philistines to demonstrate his glory to both Israel and to the Philistines. At least that's what I think you could conclude if it happens the way that we think it's going to happen and the ark goes back to Beth Shemesh. But we see the confirmation next. Say And watch. Test it and see. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who's done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Beth Shemesh is a part of the tribe of Dan's inheritance in the promised land. 
Um, it's kind of a border town. It lays in the Sorek Valley, which will become important as we move along in, in this um, conflict between the Philistines and Israel. Um, but it also happens to be, again, uphill um, from where they were. Um, it's also, not coincidentally, a Levitical city, meaning it's a place where there should have been at least some sort of remnant of the priesthood who, who would know how to treat the ark with the respect that it deserves living there. Um, uh, you put all that together, and I would argue that it's the perfect test. If these cows pull this cart uphill and away from their nursing calves, it has to be uh, the work of the Lord. And you wonder, when it happens, exactly what conclusion do the Philistines draw? And here they are, they're worshiping the torso of Dagon and presuming he has some sort of superiority over the ark. But doesn't this test prove that God is real, that the God of Israel is superior to Dagon? I would think... I believe, personally, it even proves he's superior to his own people. Uh, the Israelites had gotten what's coming to them. He was judging them in this whole series of events. I believe that's all so clear. And yet, we, we don't have any real record of, of any revival sweeping through the Philistines. We don't see any of them getting saved here. Because I think they repeat the same modern mistake. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And I would argue, even though there's so much here that should be obvious looking back on it about the sovereignty and the glory of God, I would argue that we're repeating some of the same mistakes. The church, not forget lost culture just for a minute, the church itself, we are bringing uh, the practices of the world and um, witchcraft. And, I mean, we're adopting the principles of the lost world and we're celebrating them in church all too often. We're not following uh, the, the clear word of God. We're not keeping separate the sacred from the profane, so to speak. We're repeating the exact same mistakes, which is, let's be honest, it's foolish. Because our God, our Savior, is worth so much more than this. And so as our musicians come this morning, let me give you a couple of parting verses and a little advice as we move into Thanksgiving and Christmas. Again, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, For there is one God, the Father, from whom we are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We know there is one God. His name is Jehovah. It's creator. He is our sustainer. He is worthy of all glory. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to atone for us, to make a way for us. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And we're getting ready to enter into a season, by the way, not just something that happens on Sunday, but our culture celebrates Thanksgiving. Have you ever thought how silly it is to be thankful and not know who to thank? You follow me on that? See, it, it's teed up for us as a people to remind this culture that we're living in that Thanksgiving is about being thankful to Creator God. Because we need to give thanks to Him. He's our sustainer. He is our creator. He gives us life. He, he's blessed us with, with all that we have that we're to be thankful for. Return your thanks to God, and don't be afraid to tell somebody else out in the culture that's what you're doing. Okay. Same thing with Christmas. Our culture celebrates Christmas. Why? You know, it's kind of funny. I mean, we've forgotten, and the church has allowed the culture, I believe, to forget that Christmas is ultimately about 
Christ. That's where it draws its name from. It's not just about Santa and gifts and candy and all that, but it's about the fact that God, sovereign creator God, sent his son to die for his people, to make a way for us, to forgive us, and to sustain us. These are our opportunities to worship him rightly, to give him the glory that he deserves. Are we going to take advantage of that time? It's not just something we do here at church, but it's what we should be doing over the next seven, eight weeks. Let's return to God the glory that he deserves. Why don't you stand with me and let's respond to him this morning.